morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God. His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, February 6th, we are studying Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 24. In today's text, St. Paul tells the Galatians that the gospel he proclaimed was revealed to him by Jesus Christ himself. And the Apostle recounts the history of how the Lord brought him from persecutor of the church to proclaimer of the gospel. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Kilgo. Pastor Kilgo serves at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Pastor Kilgo, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good to be back. So we get started today. Pastor Kilgo, help us out with any context we should know Talk to us about this epistle and what Paul's been saying leading up to this text. Yeah, so we're, I, this is kind of one of the, it, as far as the epistles go, this has one of the more interesting introductions to it. You've got the normal greeting and, and whatnot. Um, and then you go into this this introduction that seems to not have a really clear end. It almost just flows into the rest of the epistle, um, unlike a lot of the others where there's this very clear uh, greeting and thanksgiving sort of form. Uh, here, he gives the greeting, and then he goes and he begins detailing um, his uh, his background, basically, and how he has come about to be an apostle that is writing to the church here and exhorting them to cling to the, the one gospel uh, that has been delivered to them and is continuing to be delivered to them. And that'll roll into then his other instructions uh, regarding the the same topic. Uh, so our text is kind of right in the beginning part of detailing uh, Paul's background of his call as an apostle and how that came about and what that has to do with him preaching the gospel to the Galatians. So remind us then of that problem that exists in Galatia. We talked about this yesterday in the introductory episode, but as you said, with learning more of the background here to the problem and working toward the solution to the problem, just remind us what's at stake to help us keep it grounded here as we look at these, again, uh, very historical texts and really interesting information, but help us to keep it grounded in that context of what's at stake here in, in these churches in Galatia. Yeah, the, the primary thing is, it, it goes into verse 6, uh, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So there are uh, preachers that are showing up in um, in Galatia that are preaching a different gospel, as a, as Paul calls it, which is a false gospel. It's It's not that there are multiples of gospels, you can maybe misread Paul that way, but that there is a false teaching, a false preaching going on here. And so Paul is coming and he's correcting that. And he he actually, I mean, the, the very beginning of this, in that section, he's rebuking the Galatians, um, basically saying, you, you guys should know better. You've heard what the true gospel is, and you should hold fast to that, um, not to these other ideas. And this is going to play into some of the stuff that Paul's going to bring up 
in terms of his own pedigree and kind of in the background of that being um, it doesn't matter, and this is his argument, even if an angel were to show up um, and preach a different gospel, they should be uh, accursed or anathematized, forever condemned. Um, and the reason for that is that at the end of the day, nothing can override uh, or take priority over what God himself has spoken. So if God has spoken something, nobody can ever come along and contradict that in such a way that you should believe them. And, th and this is kind of what's been been happening is you've had the, uh, the Apostle Paul has come and he's uh, planted the church in Galatia and he's preached to them. Uh, and so they have this uh, true gospel. And then you've had others that are coming in that are saying different things and um, and they're being tempted to believe those things and, and essentially are saying, don't listen to Paul. He doesn't really know what he's talking about. And this is a, a fairly persistent problem in a number of the churches, not just in Galatia. Uh, you have this in, you have different parties in different areas, but um, uh, Paul is addressing uh, these guys in particular that are trying to uh, push the Galatians away from listening to Paul and listen to themselves instead. Hmm. And particularly at issue in these churches in Galatia, with what's at stake, it seems that what they what they want from from the Galatians is that they would not listen to Paul except as a good start. Paul got them started into this Christianity thing, right? But really, to finish it, you got to follow the law, particularly matters of circumcision. That's where they get the name Judaizers. That's the that's what's at stake here, particularly in Galatia, the false teaching that's in view. Yeah. So it's um and 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 it's interesting because we still have this today, and it's it's been fine, kind of fascinating to watch just um in the the uh, culture where you've got uh, a number of churches that are uh are different groups of Christians that are trying to basically do the same thing. They're driving back into the the Old Testament feasts and festivals and regulations and making these claims that, uh, well, in order to be a true Christian, you have to, for example, keep the Passover feast, right? Um, and they don't they don't understand the, um, the the Passover being fulfilled in Christ and being abrogated. Uh, in the New Testament and being replaced with the Lord's Supper, for example. Um, same with circumcision. You get the claims that you need to be circumcised still in order to be a true Christian because God commands us in the Old Testament, and it's a failure to see the uh, the continuity and the the uh, the end of certain covenants and the beginning of others throughout the scriptures. And so when, when Paul is addressing all these things, one of the things that he's, he's very good at addressing is um, how you have uh, types and shadows, as we'll call it, uh, of things in the Old Testament um, getting their, their fullness and fulfillment in the New Testament, particularly in the person and work of Christ and how that then gets delivered in the New Testament church. So in thinking about the way that Paul recounts his conversion and his early apostolic ministry in the text that we've got today, in that context, it seems to me that the primary purpose of, of much of what we're going to read is to establish the legitimacy of Paul's apostleship, as he says from the outset, that it's not coming from man, it was given by Jesus Christ himself in a revelation. But also then in the background, it seems that there also might be a, um, something to, to note that Paul 
says that he was brought out of this zeal that he had for the traditions of his fathers. And, and maybe within just having that, his conversion also plays into that context as well, that, you know, Paul says, look, I was zealous for these traditions above all else, but Christ called me out of that into something different. So I, I think the primary purpose, again, is the legitimacy of his apostleship, but the fact that he was called out of that Judaism and into something different by Christ, I think also plays into the context of Galatians. Right, and you get a similar sort of argument that he makes in Philippians, right? He, he lists his pedigree, and he says, if these things actually mattered, then of all people, I would be holding on to it, right? And there's a reason I'm not holding on to these things anymore. Uh, so, so that's right. Uh, one thing, um, you, you mentioned this, and I think it's important to, to kind of clarify this just right at the outset. Paul's going to make this argument, and it's the, the whole experience on the Damascus Road, um, that he gets this direct revelation from Jesus. And I think it's important to note that Paul is a unique case in the scriptures. This is not the normal means by which God communicates his gospel with people. And we see here how um, there's actually a purpose behind that. It gets used here in Galatians to uphold the truth of what uh, Paul is saying um, and the validity of his own apostleship. But in general, uh, even the other apostles don't have a... Uh, a supernatural revelation of the gospel. They are instructed by our Lord himself it, while he's walking around with them. Um, and, and we say it this way, they're, they're instructed from mouth to ear, right? And the same thing is, is occurring for us. Um, Paul and a handful of other people throughout the scriptures are unique cases of direct revelation. Um, and there's always a particular purpose for it. But the promise that we have in the scriptures is that the Lord... Uh, desires to operate with us through the external word, through the scriptures, uh, striking our ears. And the way that he does that is through the mouth of another person, and especially the called pastors of the church. So that's one, one of the things that we're going to want to keep in mind as we're talking about this and not uh, avoid the temptation to fall into uh, kind of this, this mystical idea that, again, it still very much floats around. You hear this all the time in kind of modern evangelicalism and in the charismatic churches that people are receiving these direct revelations, and one of the things that will be appealed to in that will be the uh, conversion and personal experiences of Paul himself. So they'll say, just like Paul received these, I too am also receiving these. Uh, but we should remember, for example, in uh, Hebrews 1, that the, the canon is closed at this point, uh, that God is not speaking new words to us anymore. He's speaking now the same words that he's given to us through the apostles, and that's what we are to listen to. That's the speaking of Christ. Um, that in many days in the past, he spoke to our fathers. Now he has spoken to us by his son. And that's in the, the apostles. So when we engage with God speaking to us, because he does, we engage that through the scriptures and not through any direct revelation. Yeah, Paul, Paul doesn't bring up his example in order that you would seek after that same example, but rather so that you would know that what he preaches is true and authentic. And I think that's a helpful thing for us to keep in mind again as we think about this text and the way he speaks about himself. We've talked about this a little bit yesterday with the first episode of this series and somewhat also in 2 Corinthians. Sometimes when Paul speaks about his apostolic authority, 
it sounds boastful to our ears, but his point is not to boast in himself. His point is to make sure you realize that the message concerning Jesus Christ is true and trustworthy. Right. And this one's particularly interesting. I know um, uh, Dr. Doss, who wrote the commentary on this, makes this really good point uh, that there's there's just this whole string of negatives that are in here. So he says it's it's not from this, it's not from this, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. And what gets highlighted through all the negatives is that it is uh, God and his word that are of uh, preeminence in the whole conversation. And it goes back to what he's rebuking the Galatians for is listening to another gospel or, or a different gospel. And, and that's ultimately through the whole thing, what we want to be paying attention to is how all of Paul's argument is pointing to, you should listen to the scriptures. You should listen to the, the preaching of the Holy Spirit in the scriptures. And, and that's actually going to be then the, um, the connection that we have with Paul himself, even though he has a uh, particularly unique experience in receiving these things, there are things that uh, are the same for Paul and for us in the manner in which uh, God deals with us. All right, let's take a look at this text. This is Galatians 1, beginning at verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you, before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. That's our text today. That is Galatians 1, verses 11 to 24. Pastor Kilgo, as he starts in this text, he clarifies with some of these negative statements, as you said, it wasn't this. Talk about what it what the gospel was not first. Yeah, so... The, the first thing he says is the gospel is not man's gospel. And what he means by that is it's not something that uh, me or anybody else is making it up. Uh, it, it's kind of a, a similar uh, sort of argument that St. Peter will make in his second epistle, that we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you uh, these, these things. Um, so Peter will make this argument we're not making up a bunch of uh, myths. St. Paul is saying we're not uh, we're not coming up with this through like uh, a bunch of guys. It's not men who are putting these words together. It's actually the the words of God Himself. Um, so the the gospel is uh, is not man's in the sense of its origin, but it is man's 
in the sense of who it's preached to, right? Uh, and that's a that that is an important thing. I, I I saw a couple of things talking about this. How there are some ideas that'll go around that when he says it's it's not man's gospel, uh, meaning that for whatever reason it like it isn't for us or some some weird thing like that, right? Yeah. So we don't want to hear that. Well, but, just to that that point, real quickly, Pastor Kilgo, that that makes me think of just those very first words in this verse that Paul says, "I would have you know." Uh, which sound very similar to the way he spoke a couple of times when we were studying 1 Corinthians. You know, he he wants the Corinthians to know things. He wants the Galatians to know things. So he wants those who hear to know the gospel, that it is for them. And in that sense, you know, it is it is it belongs to man. It's for the benefit of man, but it didn't come from man. Right. Yeah. So it so its source and its origin is God, but its uh its object and who it's being delivered to and addressing is is man, right? Yeah. Um, and so, and also, it, it you can read past this, but it, it's in the that is preached by me is not man's gospel. That is, it's not my gospel, right? Even though he'll sometimes refer to it in that sense, um, uh, he's he's making it very clear that in the same way that in general humanity's not making this up. I'm not making this up either. Um, and like you said, this I would have you know is is a marker that Paul especially will use to emphasize something that is particularly important for the 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 hearers to to grab onto, right? And then he he continues this thought uh, that I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus. So the, the reason why the uh, the revelation on the Damascus Road for Paul is important is because it's going to come into play here in Galatians. And I and I do think part of the reason why he receives this in this way is because the Lord knows he's going to have to deal with this in Galatia and in other places, and he's going to actually be able to use this as an argument. You know, I didn't receive this from the apostles. I didn't go to the apostles and they told me these things that they had made up, and now I'm just repeating them to you. Um, nor did he go to uh, was he instructed by these things by Ananias, right? So um, Paul, when he goes and he uh, meets up with with Ananias, that the, the purpose there is for him to be baptized, right? It's not to be instructed. He's already received uh, and is continuing to receive this instruction hmm. uh, it, through a a revelation. Or and and this is maybe a, a an important thing um, that the uh, the Revelation language here is apocalypse. Uh, it's where we get apocalypse from, and it simply means unveiling, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and th- this is something either a lot of people don't know or will skim over. Um, a revelation of Jesus Christ doesn't mean uh, receiving something that is new, but it it means uh, pulling back the curtain to see what's been there the whole time. Right, so you you can almost think like Wizard of Oz. You know, there's the um, uh, the guy that's behind the curtain running everything, and this the kind of the mystical wizard guy was was out there, but that wasn't the real thing. When you pull back the curtain, you see what's been there the whole time, right? So Jesus has been there the whole time, right? Same thing uh, when uh, Paul will t- or Peter will talk about the unveiling of Jesus on the last day. John will do the same thing. That it's not that all of a sudden Jesus shows up. He hasn't been here. He's been out playing golf or something. Uh, it's 
he's been here, but we don't see him with our eyes. So uh, Paul on the Damascus Road is given to actually see Jesus with his eyes in this vision. That's the uh, the revelation, the revealing of Jesus, and that that is that is a particularly important thing to to make sure that we understand as we're talking about the uh, the the instruction that Paul gets through this direct revelation. It's not e- even what Jesus is giving to Paul is not a new thing that's just coming out of thin air. It's the thing that's always been there. It's the one truth, the one gospel, um, and that's being the 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 curtains being pulled back on the whole thing for him. Right. Yeah, we will we'll see that later in this epistle and you certainly see it in the book of Acts that the revelation of Jesus Christ that Paul has is in full agreement with the revelation of Jesus Christ that the other apostles had. And to what you were saying about, you know, that the Lord Jesus in revealing himself to Paul in this way, you know, prepares Paul for this moment. What what wisdom in our Lord Jesus Christ to do things this way historically? Not only that, but just generally speaking, that he therefore provides himself, you know, multiple witnesses. And of course, he'd already given himself multiple witnesses with all the apostles. But I suppose you could make the argument, and some have tried, that, well, they all kind of got together and figured this out themselves. Paul doesn't fall into that category at all, because as he'll, he tells us in this text, he had been a persecutor of Christianity. And so you have two separate witnesses who weren't corroborating with each other from the outset that now are going to testify to the same thing concerning who this Jesus is and what he's done. Right. And I mean, like you said, not only are they not uh, uh, working together on this, they're adamantly opposed to one another. Uh, and that's, that's the very next line, but he also brings it up at the, at the very end where um, uh they, they hear about Paul and they say, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Um, there's a couple of interesting things in there, but one of them is that Paul is so well known for his persecution of the church that you can just refer to him in that way. He who used to persecute us, right? Um, and you're just going to know. It's almost like the, the he who must not be named sort of deal, right? Um, so he brings this up in, in verse 13, you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And this is a fascinating thing to me because, um, he just openly admits the, uh, the purpose of what he was trying to do was to actually destroy the church of God. And I think that this is something that we should grab onto as a, um, a little bit of comfort uh, at all times throughout the history of the church, that there are always people uh, spurned on by the devil that are trying to destroy the church of God. Hmm. And that Jesus' promise that the gates of hell will never prevail against his church and the true confession does actually hold true. And you see that in, uh, in Paul's life, where he's trying to, as in his own words, destroy the church of God. And we see this throughout history where uh, uh, evil men have tried to destroy the church of God and they they will never succeed. Um, things can get dire, to be sure. I'm sure uh, St. Stephen uh, didn't think that things were all fine and dandy as uh, Paul is standing there observing his stoning. 
But at the same time, you see the prayer that Stephen offers up in the midst of it. And so you can kind of see both realities sitting there. And so for us, when we see the persecution of the church throughout the world, and possibly even in our own backyards, uh, and we see people actively trying to destroy it, uh, whatever that may look like, that we can take comfort that uh, many men have tried, including uh, St. Paul himself, and they've failed, and the Lord has even used stuff like that in order to strengthen his church. Right? One, one of the things that makes Paul uh, so incredible uh, and so fun to, to, to read and to, to think about what he's talking about is his background as one of the chief persecutors of the church. Right, that that's always just sitting in the background. He he brings it up all the time, and so God uses that, as evil of a thing as that is, He uses that in order to uh, even here strengthen the case for the uh, the veracity of the gospel that He's now preaching that He's had revealed to Him. Mm, yeah, I, I like the the comfort that you spoke about there. Uh, thinking about the way he brings up his former life of persecution, say in First Timothy, uh, the comfort that usually is proclaimed there is that, you know, God saved Paul, the chief of sinners, and so he can save me as well, the chief of sinners. But here, a mm-hmm. different angle from that comfort, that if the Lord can protect his church from a persecutor as violent as Paul, so he will continue to protect his church from other violent persecutors as well. No matter what those persecutors do to us, the Lord is in charge preserving his people. Another another example of the comfort that we have from the example of Paul prior to his con- conversion. Right. And and it's I, I think it's useful to to note here, like I brought up Stephen, so this is a good example of this. You know, how, in what way is God uh, protecting and preserving his church and his people? Well, one, he will always make sure that there is a church. That's That's first and foremost. Um, as he's promised, the gates of hell will not prevail against this. The gospel will always be proclaimed somewhere. Um, the second is uh, that the way in which God preserves us from evil is not always by removing evil from our midst, but sometimes it's allowing that evil to take our life. And this is Stephen. Um, this is also what uh, the three men in Daniel pray, that our God is able to save save us uh, from the burning fiery furnace, and He will save us from your hand, O King. But if not, and that that's an important line that's in there. So there's the possibility that these three men are going to be burned in the furnace, and they very well know it. Um, but they know, so that's He is able. Uh, they know that they will be delivered from the hand of the King. And that comes about through uh, either their death in the furnace or in their uh, being preserved from the flames. And, you know, it's obviously the second historically, but Stephen's actually the opposite, right? Uh, Stephen is preserved um, or is delivered from the the hands of Paul uh, through his stoning, Hmm. right? And and that's an important thing to realize that the way in which God is going to deliver individually his Christians— it does not always look like removing the evil, but he will not let the evil conquer us uh, eternally. Yeah. And so yeah. Um, this is why Jesus will give us the exhortation, uh, do not fear those who uh, can only kill the body, 
rather fear him who after killing the body can cast both body and soul into hell. So we're not to fear the, the ones who can take our life because as the, uh, the, the martyr, um, uh, Justin Martyr, so aptly named, uh, said they can kill us, but they can really do us no harm. Yeah. Right? Lord, so, I mean, it's... Uh, I was just gonna say, the, the, Lord, the Lord answers the prayer that he gave us to pray, deliver us from evil. In, in either right. case, yeah. So let's right. well, let's go ahead. We'll we'll pick up more of that conversation on the other side of the break. Pastor Kilgo, you're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Sean Kilgo this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. And it's faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, February 6th. We're studying Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 24 with Pastor Sean Kilgo. He serves at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Pastor Kilgo, prior to the break, we were talking about Paul's recounting of his history. He is the persecutor of the Church of God violently. He tried to destroy it. The Lord protects his church from such evil. Paul continues, as he talks about his history, that at that time, he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his own age. So he was he was a much better Jew than the rest religiously. He was that zealous for the tradition of his fathers. So we talked a little bit about this at the outset. Talk about Paul's zeal for his faith prior to conversion. Yeah, so you've got the two things. One, he uh, it, it's almost like prodigy sort of talk, where yeah. like... I was just really, really cut out for, um, uh, for Judaism and and for the, the the doctrines and the, uh, the faith and the ceremonies and all this sort of stuff. Um, and this is his his zealousness for the traditions. I mean, he's just like fully, fully bought in, uh, on all of these things. I, I do think there's an important note that you you can misread this as saying being zealous for the traditions of your fathers is thereby a bad thing. He doesn't say that. Um, uh, what he's what he's putting forward is that Judaism and the doctrines that were set forth there, um, having those being unfulfilled in Christ is going to lead you in the wrong direction. And that's where Paul was going with this. But... Um, the traditions that have been passed down to us from our fathers are actually, uh, they're not automatically a bad thing. In fact, Paul is also the one who will say, hold fast to tr the traditions that you have received uh, from me, either by word or in writing. So 
uh, I think it's important to note that just taking a text like this as a um, at a as a sadis to just jettison all traditions from the church is a uh, a grave misuse of this text. If but you have also, good traditions, then you should hold on to them. If you have right, bad, also, and you should know why. If you have bad right. traditions, then that's a. I mean, I I guess the the other text that comes to my mind is it, it's in First Peter chapter one, where Peter says that you're been you're redeemed from the feudal ways of your forefathers. So if right. if what you've been handed down by your forefathers was idolatry, then no, you don't want to hold on to that. But if if your forefathers hand down to you the saints the faith once delivered to the saints, then by all means, please hold on to that. Yeah, so like a good example of this would be Abraham, right? Abraham is has passed down to him uh, a, a variety of idolatrous practices. He, he shouldn't hold on to those, right? Um, Paul has a variety of practices passed down to him that he should not be holding on to. For example, the temple sacrifices. Those are done away with with Christ. Um, the, the keeping of the various festivals as a means of works righteousness, that's a, a practice that should be abrogated uh, in Christ. And this is, in fact, same guy who writes this is the same one who will bring those specific things up uh, in Romans. So, uh, but it goes both directions. Uh, just because a tradition is passed down to us doesn't mean that it's, it should be jettisoned. And also just because the tradition is passed down to us doesn't mean that it should be automatically received. It has to be tested um, against the scriptures to see if it, whether or not it actually comports with the as you said, the faith once delivered to the saints. Um, and then the way the confessions will actually get at this, because it will discuss this, uh, the Lutheran confessions will talk about whether or not something is useful in the instruction of the faith, uh, especially for uh, young people and children, because the, the ceremonies and the traditions are very good at teaching various, uh, various things in the church, uh, particular, excuse me, particularly ideas. Um, so, for example, uh, kneeling at the altar is a tradition that we have had passed down to us for the reception of Holy Communion. Um, that teaches, especially little kids, a general concept of holiness and reverence that is occurring here well before they begin to understand uh, anything specific to the Lord's Supper. Even as uh, little toddlers, they're understanding that something uh, uh, holy is going on here and we should act accordingly in our, even our body posture, right? So the, the various traditions always have to be weighed on these things. Um, and there are times in which there are traditions that have been, uh, maybe lost time that get, uh, rediscovered. And when we encounter those, we run them through the same thing. So we say, okay, hey, look, the church did this for like 500 years, and at some point it stopped for whatever reason, but is this a good tradition that it would benefit the church to have, mm. right, that we can then start passing down to the generations again? So, right. so then, the, the traditions okay. of the Go fathers ahead, are, are uh, not necessarily a bad thing. That's all I wanted to sure, say on that. Sure, that, that phrase, right? But in, in this context, then, what Paul is saying with the traditions of the fathers— and in the context of the Judaizers who have who are in Galatia and telling the Galatian Christians, Paul got you on a good start, but here's all these, to use his phrase, traditions of the fathers that he hasn't taught you about, and you need to do those to be able to be a real Christian. 
then part of the effect of, of what Paul's getting at here by recounting his history in this way is he he's he's telling the Galatians, look, they're saying that I don't know about these things and I kind of kept them from you. No, no, I was much better at all this than they were, but I've been given something else, something different, the actual gospel in Christ, and that has come to me by God's grace. And that's that's where he then turns in his account of his conversion in verses 15 and 16. So take us into that section, Pastor Kilgo. Yeah, so 15 and 16 is is uh, is this really nice um, uh, discussion of the the eternal will of of God in Christ, right? Um, he who had set me apart before I was born, which has this great echoing of, of the psalmist, right? That um, you you knew me before I was conceived. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That this this confession of God's foreknowledge, uh, and that God has, uh, prior to his birth, uh, set him apart. Uh, and this is, you know, classically the way we talk about something being holy, but here, this is Paul being set apart to be an apostle. So God knows beforehand, even before Paul is born, that he's going to set this guy apart as being an apostle, which is very cool. And it's very, it's really great that Paul brings this up. And that the way this ends up taking place is that he's uh, he's called by the grace of God um, in order to do this work and in order to be apostled and to preach the gospel and all these things. And the 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 two words that are in here, and and we use this language all the time, being called by grace. And I think because it's so common, we we miss uh, some of the the language that's sitting in there. Um, so the the calling language, I, I mean, this this echoes the small catechism, right? That the Holy Spirit maybe, has maybe called me by the gospel. Catechism echoes Paul, maybe, but well, one way or the other, right? Tomato, tomato. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, so you know, Luther reminds us that uh, God uh, has the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel and enlightened me with his gifts and sanctified and kept me in the one true faith. In the same way, he also calls, gathers, and enlightens the whole Christian church and keeps it in the one true faith. So this, this calling language, though, um, is uh, is the root word, actually, for the church, right? So so the church is, in the scriptures, those who have been called out of uh, their darkness, called out of sin, and placed into a new uh, reality in the gathering around the, the gospel and the, the sacraments. And the thing that does that is the Lord's grace. Uh, this is the Lord giving us the things that we don't actually deserve. We haven't merited these things. Uh, this also uh, is sitting in the in the background of how Luther will talk about the first article, for example, uh, after he talks about God uh giving me my body, my members, my reason, my senses, taking care of them, and also preserving, protecting, and guarding me from danger and evil. He says all this he does only out of his fatherly divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me. So the the thing that is causing God to do these things is not how awesome I am. The thing that is causing God to do these things is his own fatherly goodness and mercy and this is being given to us then by grace. And I, I think this is an important argument for Paul because what he's just talked about is how awesome he was in in the realm of Judaism and keeping the festivals and his zealousness. And he's essentially saying, uh, God, in his eternal foreknowledge, called me 
uh, to preach this gospel and to reveal the Son to me, not because of how awesome I was, but because of his own goodness and mercy, and, and that that is the, the grace being, de- excuse me, being delivered to me. Yeah, yeah, that, that's excellent. So Paul, too, was called by grace to faith and also to be a preacher. It wasn't because he was such an excellent practicer of all the traditions of his fathers, but rather it was because he was called by God's grace, a fantastic example. So Paul says, then, he was called by his grace. God the Father was pleased to reveal his Son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles— that preaching among the Gentiles, that's the purpose, then, for God's call in his grace. And that leads Paul, then, into the next part of his history. So anything we need to pick up from that, the way of Paul speaking, that he's the one to preach among the Gentiles, and then start to make that turn with what Paul does in that preaching right after his conversion. Yeah, so, um, I mean, he he repeats this, uh, that it was his plan to reveal the Son reveal Christ to him with the purpose of preaching, right? So the 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 thing that G- that Jesus is pressing Paul to is preaching to the Gentiles, and this corresponds with um, how he'll talk about uh, that he is the apostle to the Gentiles, while as, you know, especially Peter is uh, talked about as being the apostle to the Jews, right? And so you've got the, the Jerusalem council and all this sort of stuff, and then Paul's the one that's going out to all the Gentile regions, and that's his particular job as the apostle untimely born, as he calls himself elsewhere, right? So um, uh, in conjunction with that, um, he doesn't, is just a, going back to the previous argument that he's been making, um, that he doesn't receive this from men, and so in this call from God and the revealing of Jesus uh, on his way to Damascus, that he doesn't go and consult with anybody. He doesn't go and, you know, one, learn these things, but he also doesn't go and, like, get this stuff checked out, right? And he is in, he admits that he's in Jerusalem, um, but it's not for the purpose of kind of getting the, the imprimatur of the apostles. He's already been apostled at this point, right? So he's, um, he makes it very clear that he's not uh, getting these words from anybody except for God himself. Uh, And that, again, becomes very important when you have these Judaizers and other false teachers that are coming along trying to undermine his authority, that the authority you're trying to fight against is not, at the end of the day, the authority of Paul, but it's the authority of God himself, right? These are not Paul's words. These aren't the words of anybody, any other men including the other apostles, they are God's own words, which are the, I mean, the apostles' words and God's words are the same words at the end of the day. That's what makes them apostles. Uh, same with the prophets. That's what makes them prophets. They speak the words that God himself speaks. So he's just emphasizing that that reality. Um, and he doesn't, so verse 17, he, I did not go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. So he, said, he very clearly says, I didn't go see the other apostles. I went I went over here instead. Right. right, right, yeah. So he doesn't go quickly to Jerusalem. 
Instead, he goes to Arabia for a little while, then returns to Damascus. And it's not until three years later that he goes up to Jerusalem. Uh, There he visits Cephas, that's Peter, says he stays there 15 days. And the only other apostle he sees is James, the Lord's brother. And Paul speaks very strongly that this is not a lie. What details do we need to, to see in that recounting of his brief visit to Jerusalem? Um, so I, I don't know that there's a lot of things other than, um, it's, it's emphasizing that, yeah, he did. I mean, one, he's, he's being very clear about what he did do. So I think part of this is simply, um, making sure that there isn't any room for the, uh, the Judaizers to come in and say, no, 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 he actually did go to Jerusalem. He's lying to you. And, you know, he went and he was, he was with Paul and he was with James. He's saying, look, I did, after three years, I came back, I went to Jerusalem, I was with Paul for three days, and I was with James. I didn't see any of the other guys, though. Um, and this this isn't a lie. I'm not making this up. Mm-hmm. right? This, and this is one of the, the fun things about the, um, the, the scriptures, and especially the, um, the, the New Testament uh, epistles, is you'll get, um, you'll get a reflection of the human element in these things, right? Even though these are divinely inspired, these texts do come from uh, the mouth of God, that there is a, a humanity to them that gets brought in from the guys that are actually writing the stuff as well. So you get these little insertions from Paul periodically, like here, um, and what I'm writing to you before God, I did not lie. He's like, I'm, I'm completely being honest with you guys. So that's, I think, the main thing that's going on um, with the... Uh, uh, verses 18 through through 20 is okay. just re-emphasizing all this stuff and these being immensely transparent. So as he continues then, after, again, this is, he, he has his conversion. After three years, he goes to Jerusalem. He stays there for 15 days. Then it says he goes into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And then we come to some verses that you already touched on briefly. He says he was unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, and they were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. So he was unknown in person. He, they wouldn't know him by sight. They hadn't seen him or had a physical visit, but they knew him by reputation. Take us into those, those verses. Yeah. So one, one thing I did kind of think about, just a, a side note, when he says 15 days, I think this is probably indicative of him saying, yeah, I saw Peter, but like I wasn't with him long enough for him to actually really teach me anything. Right. So that that's going to continue to reinforce that, that big point that he's been making. Um, but it's, he, it's interesting that he says not just that I was unknown to the apostles, but I was unknown even to the churches. It's kind of like he's, he's trying, he's going out of his way, uh, to not be involved with any of the, um, the, the work that the apostles are doing in Judea, understanding that that's not his territory, right? At, at, at least that's, this is the way that I, I'm understanding what he's talking about here. Uh, in the same way, like, you know, if I were to, if I were to come out uh, to Illinois and visit you guys, like, I'm not going to uh, insert myself into the, the ongoings of uh, the congregation that you serve, for example, because that's not my territory, right? And so I would expect that I would be unknown to your congregation um, in in that sense, right? Now, if if any of them 
God forbid, actually listen to this program, then maybe they might know who I am, at least through the radio. But uh, nonetheless, it, it's not just the apostles that he has, he's unknown to here, according to what he's saying. Um, it's also the, the, all the churches in Judea, right? So not just Jerusalem, but Judea, the whole kind of Jewish region of this area. Um, and they, they only know him kind of by word of mouth, right? Mm. That there's this Paul guy who used to be the great persecutor of the church. Um, and here there's that, that, uh, that conflating that's going on that Jesus even does where Paul's persecuting the church and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Mm. So to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. And here the churches of Judea, uh, don't know he's unknown to them. And the churches are saying he who's to persecute us. So there's the, the personal nature of that as well. And they just, they've heard that this guy, Paul is running around, but it's like, nobody's seen him almost like he's, he's just like a ghost in the area. It's just a, uh, whispers that this guy is floating around. But now, uh, you know, we don't need to go and hide because Paul is here, but we can actually rejoice. And is what they say. They glorified God because of me. And I would, say you have to read that as because of my conversion um uh but they're now they're giving glory to god um because the lord is continuing to do what he's promised to do and preserve and enlarge uh his church and even using this great persecutor then to go and uh not only convert but actually plant churches mm. um Talk a little bit more about that last verse of our text, that they were glorifying God because of Paul and the way that God's work in conversion and in preaching, even in a particular people or a particular person, leads to his glory rather than, than ours. Yeah, so there's, um, uh, for those who know who um, CFW Walther is, uh, he's the first president of the Missouri Synod. He, he did a series of, uh, I think there were presentations uh, to the the Synod and Convention or a bunch of papers that he wrote that are all under the title um, All Glory to God Alone. There's a book that you can get with all this in it. And he lays this out at the beginning that it is the the aim of all theology to give all glory to God alone. And this is one of the um, historic solas. Um, a lot of people probably know the, the three solas, so to speak, uh, sola gratia, sola fide, sola scriptura. Um, but there's two others. There's solus Christus, Christ alone, and there's also soli Deo Gloria, to glory to God alone. And that glory to God alone is the thing that everything's ultimately driving at. That, that everything that the church is doing, everything that Christians are doing, all of theology and all of the Christian life is to be geared at uh, giving glory only to God, because He's the one that is actually causing all these things to happen. So. When when they when these churches hear about this guy that's a persecutor of the church, and now he has through the grace of God converted and is not only converted but become a a preacher of this faith that he has tried to destroy, that that is cause for the, for them to rejoice to be sure, but also to give glory to God, um, because that's quite the feat, right and. This should be instructive for us. Anytime we see uh, 
uh, conversions occur, people brought into the faith, people sustained in the faith. Anytime we uh, we see God doing his ongoing work of uh, sustaining and building up his church, we should be giving glory to him. And I think this is especially uh, uh, important for pastors, because there, there's always a, a bit of a trap and temptation for pastors to uh, to kind of pat yourself on the back when when good things happen. Uh, at, at your congregation. And this is a reminder that, um, yeah, that the Lord may be using you, uh, but it is ultimately the Lord that's doing this. If the Lord were not building his house, you would be laboring in vain. This is the the Psalms, right? Sure. So same thing here, that uh, if, if it weren't for God doing these things, Paul would still be persecuting the church. That's cause of great glory. And whenever that happens, and probably to recognize that that's happening every single time we're gathering and every day of our lives, that God is doing these, all these different things of giving us his word, uh, giving us the the blessed sacrament of the altar, preserving us in our baptism, give, baptizing others, absolving us of our sins, um, leading us in the paths of righteousness. All of this uh, should be cause for us to glorify him. Uh, if we remember, uh, I've, I mentioned the, the explanation of the creed a couple of times. Uh, the Luther makes this note that for all of this, all the things that God is doing, it is my duty to thank and praise, serve and obey him. Right. So my that this is giving God glory. And we can even think about how Paul will write about this, for example, in Colossians, that whatever we do, uh, we are to work as though working for God and not for men. Why? Because it's ultimately God that should be getting the glory even for our work, because he's the one that's giving us the opportunity to work, giving us the strength to do it, giving us the the skills and the, the means, all of this. So everything that's always going on should ultimately arrive at this location, that God alone receives all glory. And in that way, the text really circles back around to where we started, that this is not man's gospel. Man did not invent this. Rather, it is God's gospel. He gave it, and so he receives the glory for what he has done in Jesus Christ. Pastor Sean Kilgo is pastor at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. He's been helping us today to study Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 24. Pastor Kilgo, thanks for being our guest today. Yeah, it was great to be back. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Galatians chapter 1, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.